good stuff. All right, as Jen just mentioned, we are starting a new preaching series, uh, which I'm really excited about in the book of Esther. Uh, the title of this sermon series is called Courage for Today and Hope for Tomorrow. I don't know about you, but naturally, we are in a season of winter. Naturally, kind of when we get up in the morning, uh, when we uh, open the curtains, most of the time it's still dark, uh, and we're in a season of winter. The days are short, the nights are long, the sun is hardly ever in the sky, and when it is, it's weak and doesn't feel warm at all, and it's cold. Even in the city, it's still cold. You have to wrap up warm. There's kind of um, frozen frost on the windscreen of our cars. We put the scarf on. We, we put the extra layers on. We make sure the heating is on first thing in the morning. The season we are in in the natural is the season of winter. And the world we're living in today, especially over the last two years, seems to have been in winter for an incredibly long period of time. We've been in this global pandemic or, or some form of it and lockdowns and restrictions for almost two years. People are losing jobs. The cost of living is rising. Smiles are hidden behind masks. And the ugly reality of racism and systematic racism has been uh, unearthed as just a reality that has not gone away. And there's the big, broad brushstrokes and headlines, and then there's the personal stories of people living in a season of winter. The single mom with, with, with three children, two of whom are in nappies, the small income, the tiny apartment, the husband who's gone AWOL, no choice but to keep going. Will winter ever pass? The man who runs his small business and the government loan has dried up. Times are tough. There's a payment on the car. There's rent to pay. There's elderly parents to look after who, who no longer seem to know him. Will winter ever pass? Or those in, in marriages that are not easy and fractious. Lockdown was the worst possible thing that could have happened to their marriage. They've tried everything counseling. They've tried help left, right, and center. What will happen to the house? What will happen to the children? Will winter ever pass? The book of Esther was written at a time of winter for God's people. It was written by someone, probably Mordecai, although theologians aren't certain, but certainly written by someone who felt outmaneuvered by their foes, by fate and by fear. What I want us to do over the next seven weeks is take a seat and see God at work. We're going to watch and see God at work through the book of Esther. I'm just going to read the first two verses, which kind of set up the context, uh, and then we're going to get stuck into the rest of chapter one. But I just want to read the first two verses. This is what happened during the time of Xerxes. Just one little note to say, some of your Bibles, it may say Ahaxerxes rather than Xerxes. 
Ahaxerxes is the Hebrew name, and Xerxes is the Persian name. We're going to go with Xerxes, but some of your Bibles might have um, Ahaxerxes in there. This is what happened during the time of Xerxes. The Xerxes ruled over 127 provinces from India to Kush. At that time, King Xerxes reigned from his royal throne in the citadel of Susa. So the book of Esther was written roughly 2,500 years ago. Persia is the modern-day Iran, and the capital of Persia is Susa. Now, King Xerxes was this great and all-powerful king. If I haven't seen the film, but there's a film out there called the film 300. I'm not recommending it. It's 18 certificate. But the, the film 300 is about the story of King Xerxes. Again, I'm not a computer uh, game guy, but in the computer game, The Assassin's Creed, there is a character, King Xerxes. The great Persian king, King Xerxes, ruled and reigned 2,500 years ago. His empire was huge. His empire was 127 provinces from India right through to Ethiopia, this huge kind of corridor on the map of an empire that was ruled by Persia. The only comparable is the Roman Empire. I mean, that's how big and how massive this Persian Empire was at this time. And King Xerxes was the most powerful man in the world. The palace in Susa was up on the hill. So people would look up to the palace and they would look up to King Susa. Sorry, to, to King Xerxes. Salad palace is in Susa. Um, but King Xerxes was this kind of godlike figure, all powerful, good looking, all powerful, godlike figure. Now, the question that many of you might ask is where is God in the book of Esther? Some of you know your Bibles will know that Esther is one of only two books in the whole Bible never to specifically mention the name of God. The other book is the Song of Songs. Up until this point in Scripture, God is everywhere through the pages of Scripture. He's the creator God. He's there with his people. He's the God who speaks to Abraham. He's the God who liberates the children of Israel. He's the God who takes them into the promised land. He is speaking. He is acting. He is very, very present. But in the book of Esther, there is no, and God said. There is no mention of God's law. There's no mention of the temple. There's no dreams. There's no visions. There's no miracles. There's no sea being split into two. God seems distant. God seems far removed, even absent. And if we're honest, that's the case for many of us at times in our lives. It feels like others hear from God, but we don't. It feels that others know the will of God, but we feel bewildered about, well, what is the will of God for my life? Others have dreams, pictures, words, but it's a blur for me. But God is at work in the book of Esther, as we're going to see over the coming weeks. And God is at work in the world today. 
The theological term is the word quiet providence. That's a theological term for God being at work in the book of Esther and in the world today. Providence. God continuous control over human history. Hebrews 1 and verse 3 says it this. God is sustaining all things by his powerful word. Here's the thing. God has been known to intervene dramatically, to split the Red Sea in two, to send manna from heaven, the virgin birth, miracles, healings, raising people from the dead. But for every every divine shout of drama, there are a thousand whispers of God being at work. Unseen, small, seemingly insignificant ways that God is at work. Esther is the story of a whispering God. A God who is active. He may seem distant, but he is active. God is here. He's in the book of Esther. He is here in the world today, working by his quiet providence. Does God seem absent to you? Then Esther deserves your attention. Feels like everything is falling apart. Feels like you're living in a season of winter, of crisis, of confusion. God is the God of quiet providence. He invites you and me to partner with him. As we'll see as we go through the book, kind of uh, God says, look, I am the God of quiet providence. Relief will come. The question to each one of us is, will we partner with him? Will we be part of the solution? Mordecai and Esther, as we will see, they partner with God in quiet providence, and God opens things in the most incredible of ways. There's courage that is needed. But God's solution comes through ordinary people like Esther and Mordecai and like you and like me. Winters don't last forever. Winters don't last forever. I want you to have that in your mind as you read the book of Esther. I'd encourage you to to read it during the week. It's a fantastic read. Winters don't last forever. I've been married to, to my wife, Jen, for um, almost 14 years. Uh, and pre-kids, I always think pre-kids is BC, before kids, uh, before children. You know, the whole world was different, before children, and then children. Um, but before children, BC, when we were married, uh, we went to Paris one kind of long weekend or a few days uh, to beautiful, romantic Paris. Love the city of Paris. And we were uh, spending some time walking around, going to various art galleries and having coffees and beautiful French food. And at one of these particular days, we were uh, on this little small small trip away. uh, We went up Montmartre, a beautiful part of the city. And we kind of walked up and it was just like a stunning day, and, and everything was set beautifully. It was, I know it was sometime in May or June, that kind of time of the year. It was warm, but not too hot, and, and, and Paris looked its best, and you know, there was people painting uh, on, the, on the cobbles, and, and we were like, right, 
let's find somewhere for some food. Let's, let's get, find somewhere for a really nice lunch. We're, we're kind of here in Paris. It's picture perfect and everything is wonderful. So we, we picked this restaurant where we could sit outside and, you know, the waiter does his kind of French thing. And it's just, it's just wonderful. Absolutely wonderful. You're sitting there and everything. We thought, right, what can we have that's really French? And, and we both really like, so we're like, right, moules frites, okay, which is... Uh, Mussels and chips, in case you're struggling with your French. Uh, and we were like, yeah, let's, let's order that. And so we, we sat down and, you know, just everything was, was just picture perfect, wonderful. And then we tasted the mussels. They were disgusting. They were rubbery. They were horrible. They just were wrong. And it's funny because that beautiful picture perfect afternoon it's forever, we joke about it, it's forever kind of shattered by the disgusting muscles. It felt like we'd been deceived and been lied to by these muscles. And as we go and read the rest of chapter one, I want you to have this in your mind. So often, things aren't what they seem. The bright lights become the lonely nights. The fast cash becomes... The mountain of debt. The being lured into bed becomes being left all alone. Have that in mind as we read Esther chapter 1, and we're going to start at verse 3. After the little kind of introduction we read as to set the context, we're going to start in verse 3. And the third year of King Xerxes' reign, he gave a feast. For all his officials and servants, the army of the Persians and the Medians and the nobles and the governors of the provinces were before him. While he showed the riches of his royal glory and the splendor and the pomp of his greatness for many days, 180 days. And when these days were completed, the king gave for all the people present in Susa, the citadel, both great and small, a feast lasting for seven days in the court of the garden of the king's palace. There were white cotton curtains and violet hangings fastened with cords of fine linen and purple to silver rods and marble pillars and also couches of gold and silver on a mosaic pavement of Porphyry, marble, mother of pearl and precious stones. Drinks were served in golden vessels, vessels of different kinds, and the royal wine was lavished according to the bounty of the king. And the drinking was, and the drinking was according to this edict. There is no compulsion, for the king had given orders to all the staff of his palace to give to each man as he desired. Just stop for a moment. So, so King Xerxes kind of just sets off this, this lavish banquet for six months, primarily for the army, for the 15,000 or so troops. He was showing off his power and his might, and he wanted to convince the army, the officials, the governors, the soldiers to fight against the Greeks. And this was the most lavish banquet you had ever seen. Food, booze, lavish living, the whole thing for six 
mums. I mean, think stag do times Las Vegas times 100. I mean, this thing would have been bonkers. And then in verse 5, after he's done this for six months, in verse 5, he then opens it up for a week to everyone in the city, to the rich and the poor in the city. And you see there the crazy wealth of the palace. The decor is incredible. Just, just lavish, beautiful richness dripping off the walls of the palace. Drinks in golden goblets that were each unique. Not one was the same. And you could have as much as you wanted. Everything was free. Everything you could enjoy. This lavish, lavish banquet. Let's read on verses 9 to 11. Queen Vashti also gave a feast for the women in the palace that belonged to King Xerxes. On the seventh day, when the heart of the king was merry with wine, in other words, he was drunk, he commanded Mehaman, Bistha, Harbana, Bigtha, and Abakala, Zetha, and Carcass, the seven eunuchs who served in the presence of King Xerxes, to bring King, Queen Vashti before the king with her royal crown in order to show the peoples and the princes her beauty, for she was lovely to look at. So day 187, the king is in high spirits and he decides he wants to show off Queen Vashti. Now historians tell us that Queen Vashti was incredibly beautiful. And he wanted to flaunt her in front of his friends. I'm not going to go into too much detail, but the but commentators debate whether, whether that, that was kind of like skimply or whether that was just in a full regalia of, of the beautiful kind of dress. But whatever it was, he wanted to show her off to his friends and officials. And Persia was no safe place for a woman. Women were, were looked upon as property at that time. So what happens? What does Queen Vashti say to her kind of command to come to this crazy drunken party and be paraded in front of King Xerxes' friends and officials? What does she say? Verse 12. But Queen Vashti refused to come at the king's command. At this, the king became enraged and his anger burned within him. Queen Vashti says, no, I am not coming. And so King Xerxes becomes angry. He blows a top. This, this, this incredibly mighty man, this billionaire King Xerxes who rules 127 provinces, this mighty overlord of all the people, with all the resources and, and all the finances at his disposal, is made to look powerless by his wife. Now, it's a whole other kind of preach and, and thing, but well done, Queen Vashti, well done. And King Xerxes has done all his strutting and showing off, and now he looks like nothing in front of his drinking buddies. He looks like a complete and utter 
full. Everything about what he said and done, he seemed to be hollow and empty. So let's read on and see what he does next. Then, verse 13, then the king said to the wise men who knew the times, for this was the king's procedure towards all who were versed in law and judgment. The men next to him being Karshana, Sitha, Adamatha, Tarshish, Mez, Marshana, and Memukan, the seven princes of Persia and Medea, who saw the king's face and sat in the kingdom. According to the law, what is to be done to Queen Vashti? Because she has not performed the command of King Xerxes delivered by the eunuchs. Then Memukan said in the presence of the king and the officials, not only against the king has Queen Vashti done wrong, but also against all the officials and all the peoples who are in all the provinces of King Xerxes. For the queen's behavior will be made known to all women, causing them to look at their husbands with content, since they will say, King Xerxes commanded Queen Vashti to be brought before him, and she did not come. This very day, the noble women of Persia and Medea, who have heard of the queen's behavior, will say the same to all the king's officials, and there will be contempt and wrath aplenty. Just pause for a moment. So King Xerxes has just kind of consulted his seven wise men about what to do. And there's this bizarre report that they say that basically smells of fear, doesn't it? And he's saying, look, well, what Queen Vashti does will, will, will impact the whole kingdom. Everyone will hear of it. And, and no longer will any man be able to say anything to his wife because of what has happened. And this is like this, this, this kind of seeping fear of the repercussions of what Queen Vashti has done. It's crazy, but that's what they are telling him. So this is what happens in verse 19. If it pleases the king, let a royal order go out from him. And let it be written among the laws of the Persians and the Medes, so that it may not be repealed, that Vashti is never again to come before King Xerxes. And let the king give her royal position to another who is better than she. So when the decree made by the king is proclaimed throughout all the kingdom, for it is vast, all women will give honor to their husbands, high and low alike. Basically, they say, look, you've got to, you've got to banish her. You've got to get Queen Vashti out of here. I mean, this beggar's belief, this is absolutely bonkers, blind, arrogant, out-of-touch advice, and the most stupidest thing that could have been done. It's crazy. The queen says no, so the royal officials say, okay, she said no. So King Xerxes, you need to show your powerful, you need to show your mighty, so banish her. Send her away. Never see her again. I mean, think about it like this. King Xerxes presents as one who is important, one who is powerful, one who just throws the greatest parties, the lavishest parties that there have ever been. The reality, though, is that King Xerxes is selfish, is proud, and is powerless to make anyone love him. 
is powerless to make his wife love him and do what, what he would desire her to do. He's impotent and he's ignorant. And you see, what the author of Esther chapter 1 is trying to get to, what the author of Esther chapter 1 is trying to dig to and get to is he wants you to see the reality that the glitz and the glamour have nothing of substance. The glitz and the glamour are just a big hoax. The lure of the lights, the lure of the lavish food and beautiful palace are just a hoax. The the author of Esther chapter 1 is saying, look, don't fall for it. Don't fall for this banquet. Don't fall for this mighty King Xerxes. Don't take the bait. Don't. Everything may look beautiful, perfect, but it's rotten to the core. Something is wrong. The muscles taste bad. Freddie Mercury, who I love the music of Queen, Freddie Mercury, just before he died, said this. One of the most famous rock musicians, one of the, uh, someone who achieved world idolization and all the money he could ever want. He said this. He said, world idolization. All the money in the world, and I am the loneliest man in the world. In other words, it may look like I have it all. It may look like everything is perfect, but underneath, I'm the loneliest person alive. You see, the challenge in Esther, the challenge for us in 2022 is for us as believers, as Christians, to stay faithful as God's covenant people. You see, God's people in Scripture are a covenant people. Abraham, the father of the Jewish nation, was called in Genesis chapter 12 to be a covenant relationship with God that would bless the nations. You say, well, how did Abraham do that? How how did Abraham do that? Well, Abraham was called to model a different way of living that reflected the glory of God. Abraham was called to be set apart and distinct from the nations around him. And secondly, Abraham was to be the one through whom ultimately Jesus would come, who would bless the world and bring hope to the world. As God's people, we are called to be different and holy and set apart. Now, in Scripture, sometimes the Israelites manage this. In Joshua, in the promised land, there are moments, there are times when God's people are holy, set apart, living different amongst the nations. But other times, it's a mess. You read some of the corrupt kings in, in, in one kings and two kings and, and what a mess they were and how basically similar to the other nations of the world that the, the nation of Israel had become. The Jews had forgotten their calling. And then God, just to give you briefly a bit of history, God then used the exile to get the Israelites' attention. In 586 BC, the Babylonians took over Jerusalem. Then in 539 BC, the Persians overtook the Babylonians. 
And so Mordecai and Esther that we're reading about here, they are Jews who, for whom three generations they have been living in captivity. For three generations, they have lived over a thousand miles removed from their home of Jerusalem. Esther and Mordecai would not be able to recall a time when they or their parents lived in the homeland, in the place in Israel where they were meant to be living. They were encircled by the Persians. Their trade, their life, their socializing, everything would have been circled by the Persian world. And here's the really interesting thing that really struck me this week. You see, the truly zealous Jews had taken the opportunity, by the time we get to Esther, to already return to Jerusalem. They'd already returned, you read it in Ezra, they'd already returned to begin rebuilding the walls and to begin kind of being set apart and distinct. So the Jews that remained in Persia had chosen to remain there. For most of them, exile had been kind. They maybe had a good job. Mordecai, we'll see, had a good job. They had secure positions in society. In other words, they were cozy in Persia. They'd been seduced by the bright lights. They'd been seduced by the, the lure of the superficial. They'd been seduced by the wine of King Xerxes, the beauty of his palace, and the riches of offer. Esther chapter 1 is, is, is a funny old chapter. We'll get to Queen Esther in chapter 2 and Mordecai. Esther chapter 1 is a funny old chapter, but for me... I want you to take this away from it. Persia is lying to you. The world is lying to us. And so often as Christians, we forget our calling. We forget that the church is called to be set apart and different. We forget that the church is called to display the glory of God as we worship, as we love our neighbor, that we are different, that we are distinct, that we are set apart, that we are called to share the good news of Jesus Christ. The world that we are living in today spends billions of pounds lying to us, luring us in, to lifestyles that ultimately hook us and make us weary and broken. Let me just give you a couple of examples. The lie that the world tells us that whoever has the most toys wins. In other words, you are what you own. You borrow money, you get into debt to get the bigger house, to get the bigger car, to get the latest tech stuff. You, you worship the stuff to hope that it brings happiness and it brings joy. The truth is, Scripture tells us in Matthew chapter 6, Jesus tells us, don't store up treasures on earth. They're rot away. Store up treasures in heaven. Another lie is, is the lie the world tells us around pornography. Oh, it doesn't hurt anyone. It doesn't matter what you watch. The reality is it's an addictive drug, more addictive than drugs or alcohol. It changes the makeup of your brain. It encourages sex traffic, trafficking and violence towards women. 
It's a lie that the world spins us, a multi-billion pound industry. Another lie that the world tells us is a few drinks will just take the edge off the day. There's nothing wrong with a glass of wine every night before you go to bed. There's nothing wrong with three pints down with your mates every day after work. Jameson Whiskey has this um, advertising campaign that says a glass of whiskey is the happiest hour on earth. You see, this is slick advertising, but behind it is the devil of the detail of alcohol abuse, of excessive drinking, which takes its toil on our bodies, on our mental health, on people's marriages, on their ability to work or be productive. It has devastating results. The lies go on and on and on. The lies of identity, the lies of pluralism. In 2022, Depression is on the rise. Divorce rates are up over 30%. Calls to mental health lines are at an all-time high. And suicide rates are the highest since World War II. So how do God's people live in a godless society? Do we blend in? Do we assimilate? No. We're called to be different. We're called to be set apart. Look at 1 Peter 2 and verse 9 to 12. But you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but now you are a people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Hope Church, each of you here today, those of you watching online, you were made for more than a flashy party, than a moody king, than the bright lights of the world. You were made to serve the almighty God. You were called, you were created to serve the almighty God. Let me conclude. For me, preparing and reading through Esther, the first chapter was the biggest challenge as we go on this journey over the next seven weeks. But I hope from it you'll get a number of things. I hope that you will be reminded afresh today that the world offers you nothing. The world is a lie. The world is bright lights and flashy exterior, but emptiness. It is a hoax. It does not deliver. It spins a lie to grip you and to kind of wear you down. You are chosen as God's people, set apart for him. And God is at work. God is at work even in this bonkers, lavish, Las Vegas-style party, a queen who says no, a crazy edict that is kind of told out throughout the world. God is at work. Look at verse Look at verse 19. It says there, you miss it. 
But here is the God of providence who shuts a door and opens a door to another. And let the king give her, that's Queen Vashti's, royal position to another who is better than she. What's happening there? The door is shut into Queen Vashti and the door is opening to Queen Esther. God is quietly at work, even in the craziness of this passage. God's providence is here, even in the bonkers things we've read in Esther chapter 1. A door shuts for Queen Vashti and it opens for Queen Esther. God is at work. It may seem like winter. It may seem like there's challenges afoot, but God is at work. He is the God of quiet providence. We all see the big shouts of miracles, but God most of the time is whispering, is at work, quietly, gently, working all things for the good of those who love it, working all things for the good of those who love it. Can we stand? And Charles, before we go to the next worship song, could you just put that one Peter scripture back on the screen? And Jonathan, if you're an Adam, when you're ready, you'd like to come up. We're going to worship in a moment to close, and I'm going to pray. But before we do that, as we close, I would like us to take a moment and to read to read 1 Peter 2, verse 9 to 12, together as God's people. Okay, in a moment, I'll count us in, but we're going to read it all together. It doesn't matter if one of us is a bit faster than the others and whatever, but we're going to read this together because I want to remind you that you are God's people, that you are chosen, that you are set apart, that you are part of something special. So let me count us in, then I'm going to pray, and then we will worship to close. One, two, three. But you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but now you are a people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Father God, I want to pray for us as we go out this week into the world. I want to pray, Lord Jesus, that we would realize afresh that we are your people, that we are holy, that we are set apart that we are different from the world that we are living in. Lord Jesus, come right now. Seal that truth within us. Let us be better this week at living distinct lives that shine like stars, as it says in Philippians chapter 2, in a crooked and depraved generation. Father God, come. Just remind us afresh. Speak to us afresh. We are your people. We are set apart. We are chosen. We are distinct. We are different. And God, you are with.